Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smeiser de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Paseo Podcast, everyone. In case you were living under a rock, last week we had the U.S. presidential elections. So as promised in last week's episode, today we're having a discussion on the Puerto Rican electorate. So I've wanted to cover this topic for a while, so I'm very, very grateful to have the director of Power for Puerto Rico and founding editor of IDAR, Erika Gonzalez, on the show today. In addition to insights on how Puerto Ricans voted and issues that resonate most with our community, Erika and I will also discuss the organizing work of Power for PR, especially the work that they did in the lead up to the election. We're also going to talk about the Puerto Rican elections and the statehood referendum vote, in addition to the problematic narrative coming out of election coverage about Latinx voters. But before we get into our conversation with Erika, I just wanted to quickly comment on the presidential election. It was pretty darn historic, as turnout for this election set records. More than 74 million people cast votes for Biden, and more than 70 million cast votes for Trump. Those numbers will continue to creep up as more votes are counted, but it's starting to look like more than 65% of Americans participated in the election process. It could be the highest turnout since 1900. That's before women could vote. We're still getting voter breakdowns, but at this point, it's pretty safe to say Puerto Rican voters also showed up for Biden. Friend of the show, Cristina Pasione Zayas, co-chair of the Puerto Rican Agenda of Chicago, put it really well in her appearance on PBS's Chicago Tonight. She was talking about Latinx voters, gave some examples on Puerto Rican voters, specifically as it relates to the Chicago, Illinois area. So I'm going to play that clip for you all because I think Cristina's points are, are pretty well put. How does the background of Latino Chicagoans play into their political views? Um, I think it's directly connected to U.S. foreign policy and, frankly, imperialism. U.S. imperialism influenced and informed how different subsets of the Latinx population are looking at this election and just overall their experience in terms of how it is helping them to understand and make sense of the two types of candidates that we had and what they were or were not going to do. Because, for example, you think about Puerto Ricans, and um, we obviously have had a long-standing colonial relationship with this country, and that has influenced a lot of how we look at our electoral um, role. But at the same time, you know, in terms of recent history with Hurricane Maria, I think a lot of Puerto Ricans could not forget um, the negligence, the abuse, um, and the treatment uh, with respect to our brothers and sisters on the island and what the uh, U.S. government did not do under the Trump administration. Special thanks to our friends at Chicago Tonight for that clip. Uh, that was also Hugo Balta, who is the journalist that was asking Christina questions. Um, so really happy I got to play that clip for you all because I think Christina's point is well put. I'm oversimplifying here, but Puerto Rican voters felt neglected by this current administration, and it showed on election night. However, if this election taught us anything, it's that Latinx voters are not a monolith. No party should expect the Latinx community to vote for them. I was actually reading this in the Washington Post, and I thought they summed it up pretty well, so I'm going to read that for y'all. They basically had said Latinos are a broad group that encompasses a lot of political and ethnic diversity, while Biden won Latino voters by a roughly two-to-one margin nationwide, similar to Hillary Clinton's margin in 2016, Trump made gains amongst Latinos in two key states where they make up a large share of voters. In Florida, Trump won a 56% majority of Cuban voters who account for roughly one-third of Latinos in the state, while Biden won a 68% majority of Puerto Rican voters. As a whole... Latino voters in Florida split 52% for Biden and 47% for Trump, a major shift from 2016 when they favored Clinton by 27 points. In Texas, Trump won 41% support from Latino voters, up from 34% four years ago. But in Arizona, Latino voters were critical to Biden's coalition. 
The group supported Biden by 63% to 36%, a 27-point margin that nearly matched Clinton's 30-point edge four years ago. Biden also lost white voters in the state by a smaller margin than Clinton did four years ago. Now, as results were coming in, there was a lot of problematic commentary by non-Latinx pundits on Latinx voters not coming out for Biden. But this narrative could not be farther from the truth. Biden won a sizable majority of Latinx voters, 63% nationwide. That's compared to Trump's 35%. And this is according to AP VoteCast. Trump was able to shave that margin somewhat in some competitive states like Florida and Nevada, but as the media picked apart the voting trends of people of color, it ignored the big constant. Early evidence shows that white people's voting patterns look much the same. 57% of this group voted to re-elect Trump as president, while 42% voted for his challenger Joe Biden. Now, this is according to Edison Research's exit polls of over 15,000 voters conducted outside their polling places, early voting sites, um, and by phone. So that makes white people the only racial group in which a majority voted for Trump. So let that sink in for a second. I really don't want to hear this blaming of POC voters as the reason this election was as close as it was. The whole concept of blaming voters makes no sense to me in general, and when you add race and ethnicity to that commentary, it becomes even more frustrating. Unfortunately, a lot of the media coverage immediately after Election Day focused on groups that made up much smaller parts of Trump's coalition, especially Latinx voters, 32% voted for Trump, and black voters, 12% voted for Trump. Those, both those stats are nationwide stats, so not even close to a majority there. News stories charged Latinx voters with helping to sink, quote-unquote, Biden in Florida, and journalists began to analyze Black and Latinx voting patterns region by region with the hope of figuring out why some voters from these groups turned out for Trump. Keep in mind, Trump only increased his votes in these communities by 3% or so. So to critique POC voters for not showing up for Biden and turn a blind eye to analyzing why it is that a majority of white people came out strong for Trump is mind-boggling to me. Overall, plain and simple, there needs to be more of an effort to turn out and win Latinx voters. Issues that matter to Latinx communities will differ state by state, of course. Puerto Rican voters will differ from state to state. We are not a monolith. My hope is that Biden's failures in states like Texas and Florida this election are a warning sign for politicians that they need to dedicate resources and advocate for policies that matter most to the Latinx communities throughout the United States and not just expect their vote. Policies matter, and if the proper policies are not put forth that resonate, that matter to the Latinx community, politicians are going to be sorely disappointed when it comes to those election nights. I do want to congratulate President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. Uh, I really hope your administration leads this country in a way that pushes for meaningful policy that will positively impact the lives of not only Puerto Ricans in the diaspora and on La Isla, but for working class and oppressed communities everywhere. I hope this administration is one that works for the many and not the few, but we'll see. Okay, I'm done ranting now. Let's jump into our interview with Erika Gonzalez, where we're going to break down uh, and take the deep dive on the Puerto Rican electorate. Bienvenidos a todos. This is the Paseo Podcast. It is November 10th, 2020. But again, that really doesn't matter because it's a podcast. You're listening to this whenever, wherever you are. Ultimately, we are just happy you are here spending your time with us. So thank you for downloading this episode. We have a special guest today. Her name is Erika Gonzalez. She is the director of Power for Puerto Rico and the founding editor of IDAR, a new Latina digital channel at the Women's Media Center. Erika, welcome to the Paseo Podcast. How are you today? Thank you, Joshua. I'm good. I'm glad to be here talking with you. Awesome. Super happy to have you. Uh, what should our audience know about you? Well, um, I am a New Yorican. My parents, my family are is from, my mom's side is from Aguadilla, and my dad is from Rio Piedras. My nuclear family has been in New York since the 1940s. My great-grandmother came 
on a boat when Puerto Ricans traveled via steamship and would steamships that would dock in Brooklyn. She came on a boat called the Marine Tiger that's mentioned in books like uh, Down These Mean Streets by Piri Tomas. And um, I, I, I think Puerto Rican culture, Puerto Rican identity is something that you take with you. And I've always been very passionate about our people and my parents, by example, they, they always taught me that our culture was something to be cherished, to be respected and to be defended. I can definitely see how you carry that that memory, that mission, that upbringing with you into your work today. I mentioned at the top of the show, you're the director of Power for Puerto Rico. Uh, can you explain for our audience, people that may not know what Power for PR is, what is Power for Puerto Rico? So Power for Puerto Rico is a national coalition of Puerto Rican diaspora leaders, groups, and allies working together to change federal policies that will help Puerto Rico to clear barriers rather than hurdles that are in the way of Puerto Rico's rebuilding and, and success, meaning more economic self-sufficiency and, and more local control. The coalition was cobbled together right after Hurricane Maria hit because there needed to be an advocacy arm that was Washington DC facing. So there are organizations in, in our coalition like the Center for Popular Democracy, the Hispanic Federation, the Sierra Club, national organizations of that nature, and in regional local Puerto Rican organizations. So Alianza for Progress, the Puerto Rican Agenda, Puerto Rican Cultural Center, the people for Puerto Rico and Pennsylvania, PRIM, Puerto Ricans in Minnesota, et cetera. So um, it, the immediacy was dealing with all of the the aftermath of the hurricane and making sure that we could we could sort of clear the deck as much as possible and push for for funding for Puerto Rico. And as as is always the case, what winds up happening is that you go deeper and see all the fundamental issues at the core um, that were laid bare when the hurricane hit. So um, we advocate for a lot of structural change as well as like as well as parity. And we spend a lot of time educating people across the country and in D.C., of course, which is a big pressure point about about Puerto Rico. You mentioned parity. Uh, I don't know that many people understand that that terminology. Could you give us a, a bit of a deep dive into to what you mean by that? So what I mean is that the way the islands, the territories, colonies are funded, it's, it's a different funding formula than how people in states receive funding for Medicaid, for example. The way Puerto Rico for some of its social safety programs receives federal funding is basically through a limited block grant. And then it's gotta just deal with what's there. So for for these health for healthcare funding, you don't have maybe some services that are covered in the island, you have a limited cap. And so Puerto Rico has to every so often get on this merry-go-round to petition for more funding and equitable funding and then do it again over and over again because we're not funded in the way that states are. And, and mind you that the need is greater often in Puerto Rico and some of the other territories. There's more food insecurity in Puerto Rico, um, healthcare issues, et cetera, et cetera. So this is, this is a constant issue. It's a problem and it's, it's not something that where you have to wait necessarily for a status adjustment to resolve, uh, but the, the, it, it puts Puerto Rico constantly at the mercy of people who feel is namely Republicans that Puerto Rico is getting too much money or, or, you know, that doesn't need as much, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And, and it comes to a lot of basic necessities. It's an issue for basic necessities like healthcare, like nutritional aid, which is another merry-go-round ride that we have to constantly go on to, to make sure that funding is renewed and at the, at the, the rate that is needed on the island. Thank you for breaking that down for us. I mean, I, when I was reading over that the House bill um, that was demanding that there'd be equal benefits for the money that uh, Puerto Ricans on the island put into into our government, uh, this whole idea of parity was a new term for me, a new concept for me. Uh, and, you know, I, I like to think that I'm pretty up to date for the most part on, on things happening in, in Puerto Rico and the injustices that exist uh, as a part of the United States and, and Puerto Rico relationship. I was very grateful to have Power for Puerto Rico. I know the Cultural Center here in Chicago participated in the National Day of Action in Washington, D.C. Um, I feel like that was probably in the lead up to that, my introduction to that coalition. 
Uh, and I know y'all have been busy. You have that PRPolicy.org website that has that maps out migration patterns for Boricuas throughout the United States. Um, you know, that's going back in time uh, a little bit to 2019. I want to fast forward a little bit from that day of action to now looking at the uh, 2020 presidential election. Power for Puerto Rico has been pretty busy in the lead up to that. I'm an avid uh, follower of, of your Twitter account. Um, I think you y'all are always good at, at putting out some really good stats that pertain to the Puerto Rican community. Can you share some examples of the type of work uh, Power for Puerto Rico has, has done up to the election? Thank you for that. And and what you're alluding to, Joshua, is that we 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 didn't have one of the the spaces that Powerful Puerto Rico is filling is that we didn't have a national Puerto Rican organization. We used to have mm-hmm. these national organizations that were based in DC. So we had to sort of build out this scaffolding, if you will, that's that's a very loose term, just kind of come together, solidify and, and look at each coalition member's strengths and what they could their wheelhouse and what they could bring to the table. And, and it's been sort of trying to, to iterate as a coalition and also being forced to take on new issues. If you looked at where Puerto Rico's issues were when Hurricane Maria hit and then the hurricane, the magnitude of all of that, the debt crisis, the hurricane, et cetera, it, it, were huge enough in and of themselves. And then since then we've had the earthquake and the earthquakes that hit Puerto Rico and the COVID pandemic. So it, it's like to say, we, we need to be a full-time year-round coalition that's operating because of the magnitude of challenges. And we are in support to, to how the island wants to lead um, in terms of um, most of the policy issues that you've seen in the PRPolicy.org site that are laid out in that blueprint are issues that have been on the table for a long time. The lack of parity, the Jones Act, all, all these other issues. But in 20, going back to your question, in 2019, we launched what we call the Show Us Your PR Policy campaign. And it was, and it was, um, I'm really proud of that effort because it was proactive. It was a look ahead campaign. Sometimes we're, we're constantly dealing from battles day to day and, and in reaction mode. And this was a sort of breaking bread over lunch and, and saying, how do we have an impact on the election cycle coming up? And one of the complaints has been is that the way that Puerto Rico's issues are talked about or attended to is very, in a very piecemeal approach. And what we said and my my colleague Federico de Jesus laid out the the the, initial, the open letter and document is that the way that a candidate presents a platform on other issues, climate, on foreign policy, et cetera, we want to see we want to see the same thing done for Puerto Rico. We want to see actually your plan that you've given thought that we can compare what you've put on the table with other candidates and that we would report back. And hence why that microsite was launched, PRPolicy.org to be able to talk about while while during the democratic primaries, what people were putting, what the candidates were putting on the table. So that became a year long push. We issued an open letter with the policy blueprint. We, um, more than 60 local and national organizations, Puerto Rican and national and non-Puerto Rican signed onto the letter. We had pressure point activities, um, social media, Twitter booms to bring attention to specific policy, policy issues as the debates were going on so that we could inject ourselves into a conversational space that we knew was not going to be created at the at the democratic debates. As you saw throughout all of those debates, not one question was posed on Puerto Rico, which is absolutely mm-hmm. shameful, including the debate that took place in Florida. On the anniversary, the last anniversary of um, Hurricane Maria, or rather the, the, the second anniversary, we had a day of action where a number of different groups within the coalition and partners went actually to the campaign offices showed up with the show us your PR policy site. So signs. So folks from Chicago made that trek to Indiana to go to Pete Buttigieg's offices mm-hmm. and folks, people in New York showed up to Andrew Yang's office, et cetera. And, and we, we reported back on it. And it was important for our people to see that because the goal of the campaign is to say, no longer can you come to our community for a photo op or to collect funds or to say a one-liner and then expect our vote in return. We have to create a new standard for you guys and for us. And we're going to keep iterating it. I think that that's there. There's a way that we can pivot this towards congressional candidates who have so much power over Puerto Rico policy and be able to say, hey, these are the 20 largest Puerto Rican populations, congressional districts. And we need to look at the incumbents and the the challengers and say, where's your Puerto Rico policy? 
And you saw how effective, like in, it, it also happens in a very decentralized way. So we had, there were people in North Carolina, a group that popped up called Boricuas Activao. And they reached out to us and they said, hey, we want to sign on to your letter. And they were, when, when people came through, like Tom Steyer, they were talking to them about the policy blueprint. So mm-hmm. it gave something, it gave an anchor for us to kind of have a conversation and push it. And, and it had results, like real results, because Tom Steyer actually endorsed the whole policy blueprint. Bloomberg put out a plan. And I'm not saying that we agreed with everything that people put out, but people mm-hmm. were actually having conversations with us, having conversations with our partners and being responsive. So it, it's, it's, it, was, it was a great signature campaign. It needed to be done. I don't know how many times Puerto Ricans have gone in an organized fashion to Iowa, to New Hampshire, which is what we did in partnership with, with groups in Chicago and groups elsewhere. And I think it's, it sets, it creates a foundation for more action in the future. Using that National Day of Action in DC back in September, 2019, I thought it was a beautiful message. We've talked about the, on the show before, the need for coalition building, very much in the same mindset of, or same like mission, same heart as MLK's Poor People's Campaign. Like it wasn't about uh, you know, you're brown, you're on this side, you're black, you're on this side, you're white, you're on this side. It's like, it was about bringing people together to fight for working class issues. And when we look at the size of the Boricua population here stateside, we outnumber the number of Boricuas uh, on La Isla. So right. it makes total sense that we would, I mean, I'm surprised it, has, it wasn't done sooner, Erika, because it makes sense to bring all the different Puerto Rican populations in each state together to be able to demand of our elected officials what we feel is most important to us, the issues that pertain to us, the issues that pertain to our homeland, instead of politicians looking at it as, oh, it's just a district issue or it's just a city issue or a state issue. No, it's a United States issue. It's the Puerto Ricans in the diaspora because we have to leave our home in order to vote at the federal level to make a decision on our home. It's 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 craziness. Um, but, you know, just again, just a really big fan of, of Power for Puerto Rico and the work y'all do. Um, it was my go to location to see what all the Democratic candidates in the primaries, where they stood on on Puerto Rico, what their policy was. And you're totally right. I mean, I watched debate after debate after debate in the Democratic primary and saw no mention of Puerto Rico. And when it was mentioned, maybe it was just some obscure mention about statehood or some empty statement about how much Puerto Rico matters, um, but no real policy being debated. Um, So that was very disappointing to see. In the presidential debates, I didn't hear Puerto Rico mentioned in either debates um, or in either town halls. Looking at the lead up to the 2020 presidential election, Erika, you know, we get hit with this global pandemic. And I know a big part of coalition building is, um, you know, having conversations with people, organizing people, the group you mentioned in North Carolina, I mean, I know here in Chicago, you know, it's a lot of times that comes to comes in the form of organizing gatherings, door knocking, a lot of like personal interaction. Um, how has the pandemic affected Power for PR's ability to organize? I know I've seen y'all do a few things, um, but can you break that open for us a little bit? How did the pandemic affect your ability to organize? So I, like other organizations, we had to shift gears and, mm-hmm. and work in the same way that other everyone is working virtually. We have done events, for example, in January of, of this year, we did a multi-city rally in front of the Department of Housing and Urban Development because of the funds that were being illegally withheld from Puerto Rico, congressionally approved funds. So we had, we had our partners in, in Philadelphia show up to the HUD office there, same in New York, same in D.C., Obviously, that be, that kind of direct mobilization became more difficult, but we did start launching these virtual conversations, which we hadn't been doing before. Um, so we started talking to medical experts, scientific experts from the island about COVID and how we needed to look ahead. And, and they were warning us about, okay, what, what happens when Zika and all these other um, diseases come around the bend in the spring and they may complicate so we, we try to be an information resource virtually. We also did that around the earthquake funding and had a great conversation with not only leaders from the island, but leaders in Kentucky and Mitch McConnell's home state because Mitch McConnell was holding up earthquake relief bill. He still continues to, mm-hmm. to do that, the bill that was approved by the House. 
So these virtual conversations, we've seen people pipe in, they live on, et cetera. Um, we're still able to do advocacy from where we're at, have conversations via Zoom. And I, and we, we were impactful in terms of, um, for example, under the Buy American Act, Puerto Rico and other jurisdictions, it's a handful, were going to be limited to buying medical supplies or whatever they needed around the COVID epidemic to the U.S. Mm. And that's that's only something that was imposed on Puerto Rico and a few other jurisdictions, as I said. So we had to push back and get that that waiver done, you know, which which we along with other organizations, you know, were, were very effective in terms of that, have not having Puerto Rico's hands tied um, around that during a pan, during a lethal uh, pandemic. So we've continued in in whatever means that we've been able to, we've been able, we've always done digital advocacy. We've always done um, uh, texting and phone banking through our partners, et cetera. So in whatever, by any means that we can and short of compromising anyone's uh, safety, we've been active, we continue to, to be active. I know you definitely had guests on the show that have participated in your phone banking. You even had guests on the show that went to Iowa, too, uh, and were talking to people at those caucuses. So um, it's really cool to see that. We're going to take a quick pause for the cause, but no se muevan, porque when we come back, we're going to talk to Erika about the presidential election results, Biden's policy plan for Puerto Rico, the Puerto Rican elections, and a whole lot more. Stay with us. We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based, grassroots, educational, health, and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-E-O-P-O-D at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. Let's talk about election results. So mm-hmm. Joe Biden, as as of this recording, is our president-elect. Uh, I don't foresee that changing as much as Donald Trump may want that to. But Joe Biden is our president-elect. Uh, so for Power for Puerto Rico... Uh, there was a September press release that was put out uh, by the coalition welcoming Biden's policy plan for La Isla. Can you explain what was the logic behind that? Um, you know, what are the coalition's hopes for his presidency as it relates to Puerto Rico? So we we were we were hardened by some of what Joe Biden laid out in his plan. For example, protecting the University of Puerto Rico, which is is always should be a sacred cow for Puerto Rico. It is it is critical not only for Puerto Rico but the Caribbean and Western Hemisphere. It produces our intellectual capital, our you know our in, our intellectuals and our researchers and and so it's like the heart. It really is the the crown jewel, the heart of Puerto Rico. So we were hardened by that and other other items that uh, Biden put on the table. But in terms of uh, Promesa, for example, and the debt crisis, we wanted to see something more definitive, more like the, you and I both know that when the protest took place last summer against Ricky Rosselló, that the dilemma, the, the hashtag was Ricky renuncia y llévate la junta. Mm. Ricky resign and take the board with you, meaning the fiscal control board. The fiscal control board is, is a symbol of colonialism. It is um, undemocratic, unelected, full of conflicts of interest and and you know we're echoing a cry a clamor from the island so i think we want to see more a more of a definitive um 
just a definitive position about um, undoing the fiscal control board or showing the, it's obviously a congressional act, but we want to definitely see the leadership and the push for that because it's something that Puerto Ricans have been super clear about. No one can say that there's a, a mixed mixed views about the fiscal control board. So that's, we, we did signal that those were some of the areas that needed uh, more improvement. We hope to, to work with the president in terms of making sure and his, and his team and his, his cabinet and whoever he appoints towards resolving a lot of the issues for Puerto Rico and educating, and educating people about these issues. And when need be, we'll hold him accountable hmm. because, you know, as, as, as has been often said, we didn't get to this path. This Puerto Rico didn't get to the situation is it's in because of Republicans alone. It's also because of democratic policies or democratic inaction. And and you know, I say that I don't say that with a broad stroke because we have some champions like Senator Elizabeth Warren who really gets it on fiscal issues, et cetera, and, and what Wall Street is trying to do to Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. So um, we recognize that the debt crisis is such a huge yoke and that there hasn't been an independent audit. And you can't just kind of undercut what Puerto Rico's public infrastructure, especially at this time and, and the way that the fiscal control board has been doing without having accountability around the debt and having all the numbers clear. Anyone, any one of us that got a bill that was like would have a 2000% interest rate would want to know where this all came from. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a common sense process. So we want to make sure that Puerto Rico's issues are, are treated with the urgency that is needed. Yeah, this is a light. This is a very light example. But my wife and I just purchased a home, and we got a water bill from the city of Chicago that was over a thousand dollars. We had wow. that was two weeks after moving in. So how we got that bill, I have no idea. So best believe we were on the phone until we got some type of resolution. Um, so looking at the impact of something like Promesa statewide, that impacts multiple people's lives. That impacts the entire financial existence of an entire island uh, is incredible to me that we've allowed Promesa to, to, to be in place for as long as it has. And when you look at who our elected officials are, it starts to, to make sense. And bringing up Promesa, looking at someone like Joe Biden, well, he was Barack Obama's vice president. Barack Obama's administration is the one that formed Promesa. So what are your what are your hopes on a Joe Biden uh, presidency as it relates to Promesa? I know you said, of course, you know, holding elected officials accountable, organizing, you know, all amazing stuff. Um, but do you have any hope that we will see a, um, a dissolving of Promesa in a Joe Biden in a Joe Biden presidency? I certainly hope so. And I think we have to keep the pressure up. I mean, it's, it is a congressional law and there were some people who thought it was the only way to provide Puerto Rico with bankruptcy protection. There were people who were firing warning shots about it all the whole time. And, you know, we've seen, we've seen how it's tilted and how it's gone. It, it's, it's, it's really pushed this austerity program on Puerto Rico that has been crippling. And what I don't want to see is, is, a, is an approach, whether it's by Congress or the executive or, or whatever, that it's like, it's just about fixing the board because it's not. The board is colonial, it's unelected, it's undemocratic, it is not in the service of the best interests of, of Puerto Rico. So it has to go, its power, it, its power should be rapidly diluted and it, and it, it, just, it just has to go. And, and I know that that's a legislative action, it's an uphill battle, but everything's been an uphill battle for Puerto Rico and Puerto Ricans. Mm. And we've had some wins. We get some wins sometimes. So. Let's talk a little bit about the Puerto Rican vote this election. So as I mentioned before, Joe Biden is the president-elect. We went through, I want to say, 72 excru excruciating hours of how in the heck is this election going to turn out? Um, who would have thought, you know, Florida wouldn't even be a factor, wouldn't even be in play, but we're talking more about Arizona, Nevada, Pennsylvania. Um, I mean, shoot, even Michigan and Wisconsin ended up switching once they were starting to count a lot of those absentee and early vote and, um, mail-in votes. Uh, so looking at this past presidential election, how would you describe the strength of the Puerto Rican vote in 2020? So uh, before I get into that, I, I, Please, yeah. I wrote I wrote a recap on the narrative that was 
forming that was brewing on election night and, and the day after for IDAL, the new Latina digital platform at the Women's Media Center that I, I'm founding mm -hmm. editor of. And, and basically what you had was people focusing on Florida and with reason, because Florida is a huge swing state, has a huge Latino population, et cetera. But it was a lot of non-Latinos who are, uh, as, as just evidence, if you watch cable shows, cable news shows and, um, and network shows, they're in the standing panels of, for example, Morning Joe on MSNBC, there's not one Latino that's a regular participant. They, they get invited mm -hmm. in from time to time, et cetera. So you have people who it, it's sort of on social media and in news media, it started becoming like this, this runaway script or line that um, Latinos hadn't come out for Biden. Mm. And then you had from our community, from activists to leaders like AOC to um, Maria Hinojosa to et cetera, saying, wait a minute, stop, you know, slow your roll because Florida doesn't define the whole experience. And look at, as you said, look at what's happening in Nevada, Arizona, et cetera. And then also let's, what is the fixation with looking at the Latino community when white people came out in increased numbers for this time for Trump in two elections? Mm -hmm. So your need to kind of dive into, oh, Latinos by 100% didn't come out for Democrats or African-Americans by 100% or Asian, et cetera, when you're not looking at the core issue, because the, the biggest part of the electorate is white voters. Mm -hmm. So I want, you know, I wanted to say that before diving into the Puerto Rican vote. And obviously we are still waiting for the data and the analysis and the numbers, uh, the granular stuff is still, it still hasn't been released yet. So we're going on exit polls. We're going on some institutes like the UCLA Latino Policy and Politics Institute initiative rather and their data analysis. And so I wanna quantify, before, before I dive into mention some of the, the Florida and Pennsylvania numbers, I wanna couch that in, in the fact that there's still data to be looked at and released. And a lot of that we'll see in the next weeks and months, et cetera. So this will be like an unfolding story. But what we, we know from Florida, at least from a Telemundo exit poll is that 66%, it's projected that 66% of Puerto Ricans in Florida went with Biden and I'm not sure that everyone else went with Trump. I don't know if that that broke down the rest as everyone going with Trump. And in two counties where you have um, a large presence of, of Puerto Ricans, Orange County and Osceola, you had 63 to 60% respectively of Puerto Ricans showing up for, for uh, Biden. So um, we could say, hey, I expected that to be higher based on what would be my question to, um, it's a credit to Puerto Ricans that have been organ Puerto Rican groups like Alianza for Progress that have been organizing for months that probably got that number to where it was. Mm. And three, it's a disconnection from a, any sort of suggestion that it should have been, could have been this, is also a disconnection from the fact that we have a conservative segment of our community. Um, all of the spaces and places that you find conservatives in, law enforcement, the religious right, the military, and, and again, there are exceptions. Um, are the places that you find Puerto Ricans and you have a conservative strand on the island, people who maybe have not encountered what they, they feel is racism um, in the way that New Ricans, Philly Ricans, um, mm -hmm. Chicago Ricans have experienced, have an understanding of how our community have, been re have, have had to deal with redlining, gentrification, police brutality, et cetera, et cetera. So um, people who did not register to vote. I mean, I participated in phone banking to Florida voters, largely Puerto Rican, as well as other um, backgrounds. But there were people I talked to that were confused about the process here. Here, it's very bureaucratic. It's um, confusing. Uh, we know that in Puerto Rico, it's it's a holiday. It really is. It's, it's a family event. It's not so bureaucratic, even though it has its own set of issues at times, as we're seeing. Mm -hmm. But um, there are people too who think that they're here for short short term and are not investing, don't see it as like uh, maybe investing their time. So there are a lot of things going on here with with Florida. The real the real story of this election with the Puerto Rican community is Pennsylvania. And for all the numbers that Florida has in terms of the Puerto Rican community, as we were talking earlier what more than 1 million Puerto Ricans, et cetera, and, and Florida just being like do or die, consider do or die all the time. Pennsylvania really brought it home. And if you're looking at the numbers, I, I think at this point, Latino decisions has the Latino vote as being overwhelmingly for Biden, 81% in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. 
most of the Latino, the majority of the Latino population in Pennsylvania and in key counties like Philadelphia, Lehigh, Allentown is Puerto Rican. So the presumption is at this point is that 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 Latino vote, the constitution, the big constitution was Puerto Rican voters. I was on the ground in Philadelphia for two weekends and it definitely um, versus like the Florida phone calls, it, it kind of, it felt like a reflection of, of what I was saying. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the the Puerto Ricans I spoke to in, in, in neighborhoods like Juniata were definitely out for Biden and Harris. Like they were, I'm, I'm definitely showing up. I'm, I'm, I know when my, my the date is, et cetera, when I need to cast my ballot. So I, I think it's, it's interesting because Pennsylvania just became such a big player more than usual. I mean, it's always been, but yeah. this whole, this whole look to Florida and the dominance, you know, it just, it just tells you that there's going to probably be more investment in Pennsylvania, more, more people looking to it, et cetera. And what you saw in this election were multiple pathways versus what happened in 2016, where the Democratic Party was focused on the kind of typical routes and had underlooked other parts of the country. And I think Democrats kind of put it all on the table. But again, it 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 could have it it could have looked a different way. And there were a lot of people that were are concerned. And and you may see that may have been the outcome in Florida and other places where the Democratic Party hasn't invested in building the relationship over time and instead makes the investment at the 11th hour. And, and then it becomes a, a, ba- a battle of saturation. Um, we saw that in midterms where uh, Bill, Bill Nelson and Andrew Gillum fell short. And the whole conversation again was like, oh, the Puerto Rican community didn't come out. Well, Rick Scott went to the island a bunch of times. That may seem superficial, but it registered visually with the Puerto Rican electorate. And we have, you know, we have to do the work and we can't play the scapegoating of the Puerto Rican community or the Latino community because the reality is, is that there's always a Republican segment. And if you're not meeting people where they're at, if you're not talking to them about the issues they care about in a compelling, sustained and engaged way, then you are going to fall short. I'm going to pull out a few little threads of things that you said. <laughs> First off, I'm glad you wrote that that article or was it a commentary you mentioned for the Women's Media Center? Right. Uh, would love it if you could send that over to me. We'll put that in the show notes. Would love others to read that as well. Um, I felt very much the same thing, Erika. At all the panels I was watching, I'm like, where are the Latino voices? Where are the Latinx voices? Like we would see, you know, maybe sometimes they'll bring out somebody, you know, maybe Maria Hinojosa will make a, an appearance here or there, but there's no like dedicated person to to be that voice. Um, yeah. I was just going in, I was going crazy because I, I started to feel this same shift that I saw in 2016 where the blame ended up going towards working class people ended up going towards uh, people that may lean more left than the Democratic Party as the reasoning reasoning behind Donald Trump not getting elected. When we look at these election results, we're looking at the highest voter turnout ever. Most people that have ever voted for a president in history. Uh, you look at the number of votes Donald Trump got, it's pretty damn close. So this idea of blaming the voter, I, I never can wrap my mind around. And you mentioned we're looking at over 80% support in favor of Biden when we look at the, the polling data. I mean, how can you critique the Latinx community not being behind Biden when there's an overwhelming majority in his camp. That to me, just, again, I'll never wrap my mind around that. So very glad to have your voice to, to counter that narrative and others, uh, in the, in the media landscape. Um, looking at, um, looking at Pennsylvania and Florida, we talked to, we were talking about this earlier before we hit record, um, about Puerto Rican migration patterns. Um, I had mentioned, and I've mentioned this on the show before, there's an NBC News report that was talking about how hundreds of thousands of Boricuas remain unregistered because of uh, voter suppression, uh, because of um, maybe a, a misunderstanding of how our political parties work, the fact that early voting is a thing. Um, it's all new to people that are used to a particular system on La Isla. So coming to the states and for them to come out with such force, I think according to PRPolicy.org, 
Uh, we're looking at close to half a million, between 400, 500,000 Boricuas in Pennsylvania. That's a substantial voting block that can vote in, in favor of one candidate or another. Um, but I think ultimately this election has taught us, Erika, that Latinx voters, similar to o- other voting blocks, are not a monolith. And if you are not speaking to the issues that pertain to them, if you're not investing in advertising that messages uh, issues that are important to our community, and we're talking about 20 plus different different countries and colonies and territories, um, you're going to be disappointed with the results. And when when I was seeing all this critique of the Latinx vote and how Latinos didn't come out for Joe Biden, I was just like, get the F out of here. That is not that is not accurate whatsoever. Um, and we're not putting the, the spotlight on a part of the electorate that the spotlight should really be on. So let's not scapegoat an entire community because all you're going to do is further push them away. Again, just going to this like thing I can't wrap my head around. If you lost an election or your election was close, why blame the voter? Because you're just pushing them away. If anything, pull a chair up, sit at the table with them, understand where they're coming from, meet them where they're at, like you said, and really buckle down and come up with some policy that's going to be meaningful and impact people's lives. And we look at the day-to-day lives of Puerto Ricans, we can't wait any longer. Like It's been 122 years of hoping that different policy would change. Everything from the Jones Act to the early 1900s to now with uh, Hurricane Maria uh, relief, aid relief being held up in Congress. Like it's, it's getting ridiculous at this point. And it was already absurd before that. Um, looking, at, looking at the 2020 landscape, in your work, you mentioned being on the ground in Pennsylvania, phone banking. I mean, again, you've done a lot of work with Power for PR. Um, but in your work, are there any issues as, that you see as being the most important to Puerto Ricans right now? As, and and I'm, I'm just talking about the Puerto Rican electorate here in the States. Right. I, I, it, it's, this is exactly what you started, you're pointing to about the meaningful policy change. Mm-hmm. When I was in Philadelphia, there well, on the previous um, visit to Philadelphia, one of the one of the um, one of the ways that our our Pennsylvania colleagues Boricua um, coached us is that they said some people are not going to be convinced by you saying by you asking for a vote for Democrats because for them they look around year to year, decade to decade, and they see their same rundown conditions that they live mm-hmm. in. So the it's it's not only the meaningful policy, but but talk to me about the real impact in my life. Like what has changed around me? So she, so the, the coaching was like, you need to talk to him about Puerto Rico. Hmm. That's a different, like if you, if it's a vote for Puerto Rico, and that was also some of what our colleagues in Kentucky said, I mean, we have Republican Puerto Ricans that have settled here from military bases, but what they care about is Puerto Rico. So I think that that's something that we, we need to, to look at a, in in research and surveys that I've seen, like by Lake Research, people care about Puerto Rico being disrespected. And when we talk about being disrespected, everyone focuses on the paper towel throwing incident, which was which was incredibly insulting. And I hear some people say, oh, that's too much focus. It's not only that, but what people need to understand is that it symbolizes, it mm-hmm. symbolizes the treatment, overall treatment of Puerto Ricans. Like we are to be jeered at, we are, you know, to to be to be just kind of characterized, et cetera. So I think it's important for people in people's stateside communities care about Puerto Rico. They also care about bread and butter issues like most other people do about rising housing costs. You see that there's an out migration now from Florida back to Puerto Rico because of rising housing costs in Florida. Um, Philly, Chicago, New York, Puerto Rican communities are like battling for the little ground that they have because of gentrification. Healthcare is an issue. Um, that was one thing that came across in some conversations. It was one survey that I was, uh, or in some of the conversations when you have a script and you talk to somebody as you phone bank and you ask them what issue is important and it's like, you know, the economy, healthcare. And there were people that they were like, yeah, all of the above. Like the, we don't see those things as separated out. They are they're intersecting. Um, if I don't have health care, I can't work. And if I don't have mm-hmm. money, I can't pay for health care, et cetera. So 
I think the bread and butter issues are important to Puerto Rican stateside and, and the patria, making sure that our family is safe and is treated with respect and, and is respect meaning that all of the policy changes that it's been pushing for are responded to. Mm. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, symbolism matters. I mean, even looking back at our history, correct me if I'm wrong here, I think it's like 1948. It was... Um, La Ley de la Mordaza, la, yeah, yeah, where it was illegal for us to wear, uh, wave the bandera for fear of um, getting uh, incarcerated. You could put in, get, get put in jail for that. Um, so when you think about symbolism in the Puerto Rican community, that's a big reason why we're rocking the bandera on our, on, on our doorstep, on our shoes, on our glasses, hats, what have you. You know, we're rocking the bandera. So... Uh, you know, we, we take those, we, t I think we take those moments and I think that's human nature too. Um, you know, we, we can, we can take those little moments and really amplify them almost as a reflection of the larger issue. Um, and when you think about the relationship between, between the United States and Puerto Rico, um, it always feels like they're throwing paper towels at us. You know, it's like, Oh, you got an issue. Here's, here's a little bandaid. Yes. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Sorry, right. Go ahead. Yeah. Right. There's so much. Right. There's so many layers to it, and, and it. There's so many layers to it. You, you nailed it. And I mean, there've been a number of it being told not to speak Spanish. To, mm -hmm. um, in another Florida community, there were complaints about a, a, a homeowners that had a Puerto Rican flag outside their home. The what happened to Puerto Ricans in Atlanta, where their IDs were being confiscated and they were being subjected to these these exams about their Puerto Ricanness and. You know, the DMV, it is not the DMV, the DMV is where you register to vote too. So, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's the constant, it's, it's, it's the episodes or what we feel are episodes, but it really dates back. It's, it, it's the systematic treatment and it's the colonial, it stems from our colonial status, our colonial treatment. Yeah, no, you're spot on. Um, let's, let's wrap up our conversation because I know we're going a little over and I want to be respectful of your time. I wanted to get your insight. So this past election in Puerto Rico, voters voted in favor of statehood in a non-binding referendum. I want to say they've done that four or five times previously um, and with, a, with a low voter turnout as well. Um, again, it's non-binding, so Congress really doesn't have to do anything about it. Um, but there, there is also the PR Self-Determination Act that was introduced by Representatives Nidia Velasquez and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez out of New York. Um, what are your thoughts on the statehood referendum vote in this past Puerto Rico election? And um, what are your thoughts on the PR Self-Determination Act? So in our policy blueprint, we specifically, and that's a blueprint open letter to candidates that 60 organizations signed on to, we, we talk about self-determination, the need for an authentic self-determination process that's transparent, mm -hmm. that is fair, and that is inclusive and binding. Anything that falls short of that is going to be a problem. And, and this, it, it's not, you know, this, this, latest referendum has been no less controversial than the previous one because of the language, because of the level of participation, and it's it doesn't reflect the, the diversity of Puerto Rican voices. So someone like my dad, for example, who served in Vietnam, who lives in Puerto Rico, who does who takes a different position than statehood, who respects that position, his voice would is nowhere authentically reflected in that process. And this has been a historical issue because as you and I both know, the party in power versus whether it's been the PNP or PPD will steer the language towards their specific outcome. So that's why we say we have to have a self-determination process and we believe um, that's thorough, that answers questions like what do uh, what would reparations look like under each of the status uh, options? What would a transition look like? What would what would be coming in and out? What does our language look like the, in transactions, et cetera? So all of the details, because I, it's funny, I was having a conversation with my dad about this and he's like, well, that's all that's been discussed ad, ad, ad nauseum. Like everyone's kind of discussed that over and over again in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And I said, I understand that, but we haven't been clear about where Congress stands on each of those aspects, mm -hmm. what it commits to and doesn't commit to. So the Self-Determination Act that was presented by um, Congress members Ocasio-Cortez and Nidia Velasquez, 
it while it falls short of being binding, it takes it a step further than any other previous proposal. And mind you, it's an iteration of a bill that was bipartisan that was introduced in 2007. So what it does, it 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 kind of tries to lay it, pin Congress down. Like you guys get a negotiating commission, we have a negotiating commission, and we're gonna lay all the cards out and then and have that robust discussion. It's not it's the concept is not new. Constitutional assemblies and conventions happen or historically in different parts of the world, but it's it's saying like, we need to actually have you guys at the table because we need to be clear on what you're committing to and what you're not committing to so that Puerto Ricans can make an informed, a fully informed decision and not participate in basically what's been a straw poll that 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 the Department of Justice has repeatedly said is, is fall short under Obama and both under the Trump administration says like, we're not gonna honor it. We're not gonna give you the money because it's being done incorrectly and instead these things get used to marshal votes and it's sad. And I think the reason why you see the political shifts on the island is because people have been seeing that a game has been run on them, you know? Mm. And, and we deserve everybody for considering, as you pointed out, the 122 years of colonialism, every Puerto Rican, where they, whether they support statehood, independence, a free association, a modified Commonwealth, deserves to, to participate and stand by a process that we know was full of integrity, that was fully transparent, that did not deny a voice to, to anyone, you know, because how can you argue for change and against colonialism and then at the same time try to squash voices of others, you know, that are Puerto Rican like you, compatriotas. So so we we support um, the Self-Determination Act of 2020. We just we support proceeding before that. We were very clear as a coalition about a process that needs to be transparent and fair and inclusive precisely to avoid all the, the circle of controversy that's been a staple of the referendums on the island. Yeah, it very much feels like, I don't know why, um, and maybe I have to do a deeper dive on this, but looking at elections on La Isla, I want to say the primary where Wanda Vasquez wasn't um, reelected to be the representative of, of her party. Um, there was issues with voting machines, long lines. They weren't they didn't have ballots ready. Uh, looking at this past election, uh, I think it was um, I think it was El Nuevo Dia that reported that there uh, was an undercount, that there is a number of ballots, like hundreds of thousands of ballots. It's a still developing story, but the four of the parties that that ran um, are questioning, uh, you know, how the votes were counted because it looks like there was hundreds of hundreds of thousands of uh, well, hundred forty thousand ballots that that weren't counted by machines. And I think they're still finding more. So again, just developing story. Right, one hundred and eighty-three maletines. I don't know if maletines translates exactly into um, cases. Uh, I guess it would be cases because maletas is, is yeah, yeah, yeah. I think but um. So 183 at the last that I saw were found stuffed with um, ballots. So it's, it, you know, it, it's sad. I think that mm -hmm. Puerto Ricans were very clear about the kind of government and processes they wanted in mass and across party lines when they came out last summer. Um, the Rosejo thing was, was confirmed the suspicions and, and the cynicism of Puerto Ricans on the island who in mass took to the street. And that's why you had the surge of this, this new partido, the M MVC, the Movimiento, um, Movimiento Victoria, Victoria Ciudadana. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they made some inroads. So I think that it's interesting to see, we'll, we'll have to wait for the numbers, exact numbers and, and making sure that the process was, was done correctly. But nonetheless, it's interesting to see that somebody who's pro-independence actually got significant, a, a level of support that that particular party has not seen since the 1950s. And the mm -hmm. fact that this new party made made inroads and and um, is really campaigning on transparency and good government, as opposed to kind of like the zeal around one specific status option or the other, mm -hmm. and that winds up being like a dead end all the time. So people are saying, you know, I think it's like my uh, my colleague Marcos Vidal says, no matter what status Puerto Rico lands at, it's it needs to be economically successful, and and people see that, and people people want to get through the muck, just like people want to people want to people don't want to swamp in puerto rico or dc right yeah and you brought up a good point about the uh mvc uh party that new party that that came out i want to say it came out like 2019 i don't know if that was a, a product of the um ricky renuncia protests but um yeah they've made some significant inroads my goodness um i, I think they they actually brought 
they had one candidate. Her name is escaping me, but she's a, a part of the LGBTQIA plus community. And her winning election to Puerto Rico Senate marked right. the first time that any member of that community was represented in Puerto Rico's Congress. So uh, they, they're making history, you know, maybe in, in, in smaller districts and maybe not like at the, in the governor's mansion. Um, but it's interesting. It's super interesting development. I think the Independence Party, which follow like was like three, four percent, ended up getting like double digit percentages right. in the last gov- in the in the governor's race. Um, so it, it's fascinating to me to to really take a, a little magnifying glass to the Puerto Rican elections. Um, bonus question. Oh, go ahead. Person who was elected from Movimientos Anaima Rivera Lassen, and she's a respected women's rights champion. I mean, she's literally a trailblazer in the island. So it's hmm. it's it's nice to see someone who commands such respect and who's who's been known for breaking ground really rise to that level. And she's head of the party, so it's it's, it's that was a, that was definitely a win, and it's, I'm very excited about that. Oh, she's the head of the party. She's right. She's head of. Oh, my gosh. Okay, we got to get her on the show. My goodness. Um, I did see a a story. um, I think this was in Metro Weekly. They were putting a lot of uh, LGBTQ plus uh, stories, but they had mentioned that there was four candidates that won in the Puerto Rico election that were all part of the LGBTQ community. Um, I don't know if they were all part of MVC, but it, it, again, it's just really interesting seeing the shifting voting patterns in Puerto Rico as as issues evolve, as things kind of get thrown in our faces as a reminder of, you know, maybe things aren't as good as we as we thought they were or as we were led to believe they were. Considering all that the LGBT and trans community has been subjected to in the island, yes. that, that, that has to be, you know, understood. Mm-hmm. And also that you had the rise, the emergence of this new party on the religious right, Projecto Dignidad, that actually I think got somewhere around 5%. So mm-hmm. um, that's yeah. something to watch as well, because um, there are people who are fixated on denying LGBT rights, controlling choice, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And, and, and that's, again, it's a contradiction if you're arguing that Puerto Ricans are oppressed by colonialism, but then saying, but then I'm going to turn around and oppress you. That has that hypocrisy and contradict those contradictions have to be highlighted. Yeah, spot on. Yeah, you're absolutely right. These I, those, those four victories that I mentioned earlier for people that are listening that may not know, you know, those four victories came out amidst uh, substantial unrest over the killings of six transgender individuals um, and a ton of anti-LGBTQ violence on La Isla. Um, so it's nice to see that there are people that represent that community in positions to help shape policy. I've taken up enough of your time. Really appreciate you being on. Definitely have to come have you on again. And kudos to you. Appreciate the space that you've created and all of your knowledge. And thank you for inviting me because Obviously, having seen when you see what what white owned run media, the the way that they try to analyze our community and fall short, it's mm-hmm. all the more reason why we need the Paseo um, show and, and all of the independent media that Puerto Ricans are are sustaining and putting forth to really talk about our community in a meaningful way. Oh, gracias, Erika. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. So let's wrap up the show. Um, our audience has stuck with us throughout this entire conversation. But if they want to keep up with you, they want to keep up with your work, the organizations you're involved in, how can people keep up with you? Social media handles, websites, what, what, sure. what do we need to know? So we have we are at PowerfulPuertoRico.com, but the way to engage with us, with us is on Twitter, of course. We That's at PWR4, number four, Puerto Rico. And on Facebook, it's everything spelled out um, except the four, Power for Puerto Rico. We have virtual conversations on the regular and and look to engage Puerto Rican journalists to experts to folks that are grassroots organizing to to help connect the dots so that it's not just about these little announcements that are coming out, but we're we're trying to stitch together, help people stitch together a a big picture and and being in conversation with them. And the exciting part is that when we do these conversations on Facebook or elsewhere is that, as you mentioned, we get we get the diaspora from all over, whether it's in California mm-hmm. or, or Iowa, et cetera. And, and it's it's really a, it's it's really powerful to see people from across the country in Puerto Rico interacting 
because of uh, of an island and people and identity um, and resistance that they that they absolutely adore and, and care about. Beautiful. Arika Gonzalez, thank you so much for being on the Paseo podcast. Uh, definitely okay. got to have you on again. Um, appreciate you. Thanks to Erika Gonzalez for joining the show today. If you like this discussion, definitely tune in to Power for Puerto Rico's Facebook page tomorrow, Friday, November 13th at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, when Erika will be part of a panel discussion. There's a few guests on the, on the panel, including Omaya Sosa Pascual from the Center for Investigative Journalism in Puerto Rico and Julio Ricardo Varela. Uh, he's the founder of uh, Latino Rebels and co-host of another cool podcast called In the Thick. Uh, they're going to discuss the Puerto Rican vote in U.S. elections and political shifts in Puerto Rico. Next week, we're going to have Michael Rodriguez on the show. He is an assistant professor of sociology and Latina Latino studies at Northwestern. We're also going to be joined by returning guest to the show, Eduardo Ortiz from the University of Chicago to help us break down the elections that took place in Puerto Rico last week and take a deep dive into the history of political parties and PR. Hope to see you next week. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, connect with us by visiting our website, paseomedia.org, emailing us at paseopodcast at gmail.com, and following us at paseopodcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, we love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode, and see you next week. Cuídate.